Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to be Human. This is your host Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. Now we're going to be uh, on the third installment and the last installment of the Germinal Joust series. This one is Writing as Pledge, episode 172. And as you can imagine, it's completely different from Writing as a Priority, which is the everyday writing that all of us do as writers, and then of Writing as Passion, where it's that that one artistic uh, creative project that you might do, and that's pretty much all you do. In this particular case, writing as a pledge is similar to the passion, but it's of a social or political or even uh, reference type work, and that's pretty much all, all, all you do. And I guess it is a, in a way like a passion, but ultimately it's not the passion of gone with the wind, but it's the passion of, of literally of life and death, of right or wrong. It's often a social or political work in almost every single case. Uh, also a, a historical work in many in many instances. We're only out for the pick for the show. Doesn't mean that there's not many more out there. And of course there's a couple out there that are, you know, I'm not interested in talking about, like, you know, you know, Karl Marx's, uh, you know, Communist Manifesto or uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf, because in a way that's a pledge for those, uh, uh, weirdos, but we're not going to be dwelling on evil, but rather we, we're going to be dwelling on the, the courageous, honorable, and, and, and wonderful few that are out there doing this, all right? We got um, four of them we're going to be picking from. Um, one is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I'm, no matter how many times I practice that, I can't say it right. So all my Russian speakers, and I've got some wonderful people here who are listening from Russia, forgive me in advance, okay? Then we have uh, Elie Weasel, uh, and then we have George Orwell, and then last with uh, Sung Zhu. Okay, so let's go on to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, this is what this fellow had did. He's a Russian, and he decided that his greatest work would be one of a historical, and it's also literary too, but it is a completely historical record. What he had noticed, and what I guess a lot of people in the outside world didn't notice, is that it didn't really matter what dictator was there and, and had gone and then another dictator had taken over in Russia because all they really did was maintain the old prison system where they throw anybody in there for anything. You know, they don't like you, you don't like, you don't like the government, you know, you do something they, they don't want to hear about, they throw you in there, okay? So instead of getting rid of that stuff, they simply maintained the older prison system and then added another one on top of that to the point where it is literally stretching for miles and miles of prison system. So he called his his great work um, the gulag, because you know gulag is is the Russian word for the for this prison system in archipelago. So he was pretty much literally saying it in in, in literary sense and, and in jest as well that the prison system literally started resembling a, a, a landmass. 
<laughs> that that's how long it had become from all these years uh, and from he had wrote he had written and this prison system which had had stopped they stopped adding it in 1953 but it started in 1924 so he put a historical record together three volumes an enormous writing effort uh, that that literally documented everything from 1924 all the way to 1953 so that's what he did incredible it tells you all about the various arrests the interrogations the convictions the transportation the imprisonments of all the people in four decades from from the soviet union now what's also important about all of this is not just that he talked about the prison system and all the things that went on in there and how long it was and how many there were and blah 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 that's important in its own right but i think the work stands out more than anything else is remember the uh, communist Russians, more so than anybody else, were famous for making people disappear on the, the literally the paper method as well. So it's not, it wasn't just enough to kill you. They, they race you out of photographs. They take you out of books. They take you out of registries. I mean, it's like you did not exist on earth. And thousands of people have done that way. So by him also doing this, he's able to put the names of people. So when they try to erase you from the history books, he's got you in his book. So you're not gone. Because you remember, in the end, if somebody has a trace of you somehow, a piece of paper, signature, photograph, uh, audio presentation of your existence, whatever, you're still among us then. You haven't been erased from the planet, so to speak. And that was really, I think, uh, one of his greatest feats by doing this, is it really kind of restored the humanity from trying to be erased by these these evil communists, okay? Of course, a lot of his own autobiographical elements are in these books, uh, because he was in uh, the prison system for um, a number of years. Uh, I don't know, I think it was six or seven years or something. So he was in for a while. Uh, once they had found out he had did this, uh, they... Uh, Put him in jail for a while. He took him out. He, he was exiled. He, he couldn't leave the country. And um, eventually they did kick him out. In 1974, they eventually kicked him out. I think he uh, wound up uh, going over to uh, uh, to Israel. But, um, yeah, they, they wound up kicking him out of the country. I guess he was probably lucky they didn't kill him. But at that point, he was too famous. You know, I, I guess they just figured, let's just get rid of this guy and get it over with, Okay. So a little bit about a background of uh, Solzhenitsyn. Um, he served in the Red Army in World War II. Okay, he spent eight years in the labor camp afterwards because he criticized uh, Stalin in a private letter, which I don't know. I don't. I really not to make fun of <laughs> Solzhenitsyn or anyone about that, but you'd think they would have really figured out that there was nothing private with these communists. They were reading and checking out everything. Neighbors were knocking on neighbors, all kinds of stuff. So. It's almost a farce to save a private letter during that time because it was not private. If it was, he would have gone to jail for eight years. So he criticized Stalin, boom, goes in jail for eight years. Okay? They only let him publish one novel, uh, One Day in the Life of uh, Ivan Denevich, uh, in 1962. That was the only book he, he was able to publish that I guess didn't criticize the, the system. Uh, once they did a, a prison reform system uh, in, in that, because remember the, the, the prison stopped expanding in 1953. In 1956, Khrushchev said, I'm going to uh, reform the system. It's getting out of hand. And, and he wanted to free in Solzhenitsyn uh, from that jail. Okay? He uh, put together a book called The Cancer Ward, and in August 1914, 
a little bit about the uh, communists, and then that's when he's afterwards of that in 1973. That's when he put the Gulag Archipelago all together, and that's when they like they lost their mind and took away his traditions and kicked him out. He went over to um, the United States for a while, and then he went to West Germany. He wanted to continue to live in the nineteen in the United States. I think later on he went over to Israel, but um, once the um, the uh, Soviet Union was dissolved. His citizenship was actually restored. He wind up moving back to Russia, and he lived in Russia until he died in 2008. In 1970, he uh, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for literature. Uh, they said he was an ethical force from which he had pursued the indispensable traditions of Russian literature. Uh, the Gulag Archipelago was highly influential work. It was an incredible challenge head-on uh, with the Soviet state, and it sold tens of millions of copies. So for, um, you would think on paper, and not to make a pun here, that uh, a three-volume uh, series, a bunch, a lot of people getting beaten up, tortured in, in a prison system, wouldn't exactly be all that interesting. Well, it, 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 it sold very well. So it was interesting, and definitely put them on the, um, on the map for this. I honestly believe... Without, without trying to exaggerate over here, that um, that sort of knowledge out there eventually helped the Soviets realize that this was a stupid thing to do. And that's why Khrushchev wound up reforming and closing that, that ridiculous system down. So he definitely had an impact, I would say, in, in getting rid of that whole, that whole horrible uh, gulag system. All right, so that's Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I'm thinking I probably mispronounced his name at least ten times, but hey, I'm <laughs> I definitely tried. Okay, <laughs> all right. Next one here, uh, Eli Wiesel. Um, now he he's famous for that he was he wound up becoming a concentration camp uh, prisoner and then a survivor, and then he wrote an incredible book called Night, and and it, it described. The the, uh, the concentration camps and people he knew, his own experiences there. It's a breathtaking work of incredible sadness and incredible uh, uh, courage. So if you ever get a chance, uh, definitely check that out. I'm not telling you not to check out the Gulag Archipelago, but I mean, literally, you have like 5,000 pages to read. I mean, at least with uh, Night, it's a simple, slim novel. But, you know, if you have the time, check out both of them. All right, so... He gets round up in Hungary, the country of Hungary, and gets thrown into um, Auschwitz, and then later on Birkenbau. All right, he was young at the time. All right, he lost a lot of his friends and family, and he was 15 years old when this happened to him. Okay. Now, um, it's about as powerful as the diary and Frank. In many ways, you know. In many ways, it's almost like the Diary of Eli Weasel, in many ways. It, it, it definitely is a comparison. If you want to put those two together and get a good um, bird's-eye view of, uh, of a Jewish experience during World War One, World War II regarding the Holocaust, there you go right there. The only difference really uh, is uh, she was found and murdered, and he was able to survive the concentration camp. Other than that, they had some similar horrible experiences, okay? All right, so it goes through all, all his dairy teller, t terrors, his everyday, everyday perversions, the sadism that was in Auschwitz and Buchenwald at the time. A lot of the philosophical questions. For a long time, uh, Weasel had lost faith in Judaism and 
wind up not believing in God. Um, and of course, if you see something like that, I, I don't know how you maintain believing in God. I can imagine how difficult that would be. So certainly not his judge about that. I guess it does make a kind of a strange sense to it all. Okay. Alright, so he is a Romanian born. He wound up becoming a, an American uh, later on in his life. A professor, a political activist. He won the, he won, he, uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature in uh, 1986. Uh, the Nobel, um, Norwegian Nobel Committee called him a messenger to mankind. Stating that his struggle to come to terms with his own political experience of total humiliation and other contempt for humanity showed in Hitler's death camps, as well as his practical work in the cause of peace. Wiesel delivered a message of peace, atonement, and human dignity to humanity. Also stressed that Wiesel's commitment to originating the sufferings of the Jewish people, but he expanded on to embrace all repressed people. He was a founding board member of the New York Human Rights Foundation and remained active through his whole life. At one point, the Los Angeles Times called him the most important Jew in America. I'm sure he mean that in a wonderful way, but I don't know. I mean, kind of how you can be the most important Jew, uh, or the most important anybody. But um, this is what they called him. I'm, like I said, I'm sure they mean that in the, the most gracious manner. He was also big in, in helping the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum put, be put together in Washington, D.C., Okay, and he campaigned for victims of oppression around the world in South Africa, Nicaragua, Kosovo, and the Sudan. And he also publicly condemned the 1915 Armenian Genocide, which was done by Turkey, which they still won't admit to this day. Hopefully one day, uh, that country stops with its ridiculous military dictatorship it has right now and has some fair and free elections, and maybe one day they can actually... Um, Stop uh, persecuting their Kurds and, of course, finally admit to the Armenian genocide and, and start doing the right thing about that. Because Turkey is a very interesting and wonderful country, but they have a horrible history and they have yet to come to terms with it. He, he was trying to do whatever he can to, uh, to help them in, in that regard. And that, that's really incredible in, in its own right, that he continued to go beyond all of that to... Um, help the rest of the world so this way it's not just about what happened um in in germany because he understood that these things were happening in some uh some instances around the world i mean we had this uh um khmer Rouge over in cambodia where they literally killed like a quarter of the entire population of a country i mean unbelievable bones on top of bones they literally take a picture of you then they kill you so they, they saved the pictures that's how they knew everybody was killed that many photographs. I think they own stock and Polaroid for that. And of course, you know, we had the stuff that was going on in Rwanda with the killing half a million people just with machetes and, and, and people on the radio stations promoting this and making it almost like it's the Hunger Games in Africa or something. It's just perverted. So, it's and of course, uh, we already know about the killing fields over in Bosnia and, and, and Kosovo. And he's definitely on, on top about about that. So it wasn't just uh, the Holocaust there, even though it was the largest and probably the most organized of any of these killing situations, any of the, these ethnic cleansing ones. Uh, and that's why, of course, it deserves to have historical, you know, uh, significance and light upon it. But there's other smaller ones that, that are, you know, this is grimly uh, horrible that we need to make sure that doesn't happen again. All right, Eli Weasel, night.
go into our next one here. Alright, next one here. A lot of people don't realize this one. George Orwell, 1984. We think about it just as a novel, a clever, interesting novel, but we don't realize in many instances how incredibly important that novel was. And what his pledge was was this. Orwell, who was born Eric Arthur Blair, a British uh, writer, he had a very, very interesting uh, life and a take on things. Uh, Orwell was like a lot of writers back in the in the, the early uh, turn of the nineteenth, uh, excuse me, of the twentieth century. You know, in the nineteen hundreds, where you know he believed that socialism was was a better form of things. So he he joined up with the uh, with the Spanish uh, uh, rebels uh, so that they could fight against the uh, the 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 republic there because uh, they were they were fascists and feeling that that would be the right thing to do. Uh, the problem was, unlike many of the other writers who still kept on to some form of the narrative of socialism, George Orwell understood the truth because when he started working with the Russians who also poured in their forces in there, he saw what they were capable of doing, that they were no better than the fascists. In many instances, they were even worse because they would be killing themselves. If they dealt you disloyal, they'd kill you, they'd murder you. Catch supplies, not do this, not do that. Steal letters, falsify information. I mean, he thought he was on the same side with these people. But between his experiences in India, when he worked as a policeman there, when he was still under the uh, uh, the, the colonial rule of Britain, and of course what he experienced in Spain, he understood what a society could come to if it was controlled by pretty much uh, these these godless socialists that didn't care about anybody other than whatever line they were peddling at the moment. Now, 1984 is extremely important as it not only shows how a government like that can keep people off guard for them to never understand that they lost their freedom and that they uh, actually lost their freedoms because it did so many things to keep you distracted. Many, many phrases came out of this book that we use to this day because they are incredibly relevant. God knows they're relevant for the American media because uh, we, we use this newspeak and thought crime and uh, positively Orwellian. I mean, these things are American media right now for the last probably five or six years. That's how bad it's become over here. Our government is not to that point yet, but our news media, they're already Orwellian, unfortunately. And this is what he used, Big Brother, Thought Police. These are these are the, the term doublethink. These are the terms that he used in that book that have now become like second nature to us. That that's how horrible it is. It was said that there were some elements of nineteen eighty four and the way the Soviets had run their country. They say some instances the way China does things and some instances the way to this moment North Korea does things. So there are definitely Orwellian all elements to all of this. Now, George Orwell was a very interesting fellow in the sense that even though he remained socialist, he didn't, he didn't, no longer connected to the Russian or, or what was commonly thought socialist. He, he wanted to be in the democratic mainframe of things, so he considered himself a democratic socialist, which is radically different than a regular socialist. And that's how he was able, I think, to keep his own integrity and in his, in his own conscience intact, because uh, oh well, like everybody else, uh, he became convinced of something, and then he wrote about it. He didn't, he didn't hide behind things, and he didn't keep talking about 
just the narrative of something uh, where it could have been versus where it was. He he understood what something was and the reality of it. He didn't really go into the idealism of this. He didn't d- delve into fantasy. That's what makes him such a unique writer and also an incredibly unique individual. The Times in England called Orwell one of the 50 greatest writers uh, since 1945. So, and I don't don't doubt it. I, my opinion, he, he probably should be in the top 25. But all right, have him in the top 50. I'll go with it. But uh, definitely incredible. Um, Orwell was definitely one of those writers that did a lot of travel. He eventually contracted uh, tuberculosis, and it eventually killed him. He went through a lot more years than most people, mainly because of this. Orwell is the only writer you're going to find that contracted tuberculosis but he lived in a time where we had antibiotics and he was able to get the antibiotic into his country get it shipped in and take it and and it it eradicated the tuberculosisism unfortunately uh that's a disease that yes antibiotics can definitely uh, uh cure it but it has to be in in the early stages of tuberculosis because once tuberculosis back in his day started really battering your your, your lungs and destroying them you, you're going to die anyway because back in his day they didn't have lung transplants they didn't have those kind of surgeries for that so he wound up taking it way way after it was too late i think four or five years into the disease which at that point you know it's already destroyed your lungs so he definitely gave it his best shot. I, I definitely think I kept him alive a few months longer, probably than he needed. Uh, than than you know he had vowed to. He was hoping that he was going to cure him, but it did just not in the way, you know, he would have liked. Now, Orwell is also famous for a number of important books: uh, *Animal Farm*, which tells you a lot about prejudice and and inequality or inequality. Um, there's uh, some great uh, books, uh, The Road to uh, Wigan Pier and Homage to Catalonia. Uh, Catalonia was uh, all, all the soldiering he did when he was on the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War. And, of course, the the Homage to, uh, the Road to Wigan Pier was about working class life in north of England. So he wrote about that as, as well. Um, keep in mind that... Orwell is very interesting that he had a family that didn't always share his politics. So that's why he had his pen name in there instead of his regular name. He was It was more to protect his, his family than anything else. I, otherwise, I don't think he really cared about you know anyone who knew who he was. Because he never, he never hid that. I think he was just doing it for that reason so they wouldn't have issues. Later on, though, funny enough, a lot of his family wound up believing a lot of what he wound up writing about. And, and they wind up coming to his side of things anyway. So it wound up being uh, for no good reason. <laughs> but I, I can understand why he wanted to do it at the, at the time. Okay. All right. Now we'll go on to the last one over here. We don't really hear much about this guy, you know, in, in, in podcasts or anything in general. But it, it more should be spoken to him about him. It is Sung Tzu. And he was the author of The Art of War. Now, who was Sun Tzu? All right, so he was a Chinese uh, general, writer, and a philosopher. He lived in the Eastern Zhao period of ancient China. Okay, um, they wind up giving him the name Sun Tzu. That really wasn't his name. But Sun Tzu is actually an, uh, it's what they call an honorific name, meaning Master Sun. 
So it was like he was just the master of strategy and writing and general stuff and all that. You know, he was actually a, a born a, a, a Sun Bin. So, but Sun Tzu, Sun Bin, I, I don't know if we would really uh, notice the difference. It's pretty, it's pretty darn close. But that's the reason why he used, he used that. Uh, and it was just a, a, a incredible honorary term they gave him. Now, here's what we got here. Sung Tzu winds up being a general, and, and, and of course, in, in many, many battles, okay? And I think in the course of these battles, he started realizing things that could be better, things that he should be able to approach in a different way, and that was his pledge. He wanted to write something that would help people not only, in many instances, conduct war faster and maybe more humanely, but in some instances, maybe even not even have war at all. It's it's really a weird uh, misnomer, in my opinion, when they call the book the art of war, because in many ways, there's a lot in this book that's anti-war, that you don't have to have war. And he even says it himself that you know it's war is a failure because because we couldn't continue to talk, we couldn't use our diplomacy and, and politics. So in many instances, it's a failure. So we uh, we we mentioned the book the art of war. And it's used in military academies throughout the world. It's taught in you know in, in China and everywhere else. Everybody has references or used it. But in, in so many instances, ironically, it's more of a book of peace in many instances than it is of war. And that's what a strange army you'll you'll find with that. Okay. Now there's been some famous people that, that use this, and um, uh, the, the Japanese actually uh, were fond of the book, and they use it in some of their in some of their wars. In the, in the 14 and 1500s. Of course, that's long after he wrote it and been dead, but still. Uh, Sam, Samuel Griffin actually uh, referenced a chapter in his own book. And, and then also uh, Chairman Mao of China on the guerrilla warfare. He actually referenced uh, Sung Tzu in, in, in his book. Uh, he even said, uh, know your enemy and know yourself and you can find a thousand battles without disaster. Which is encapsulating the basic, you know, philosophy of, of Sung Tzu. Okay, the Vietnamese were famous for using this auto war. Uh, General Vo uh, 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 Giap uh, he successfully used the tactics of the auto war in the Battle of Den Bing Phu near the, when the French were involved in Indochina. This is before we jumped in, so it was more in the late fifties and early sixties before America went over there and got uh, got all messed up. Of course, it's standard in the uh, general uh, command staff of college for the Department of the Army of the United States of America. So, of course, we obviously reference the book because it does have a lot to do with strategy. Uh, Marine Corps uses it as one of the formal things they need to read. Uh, West Point is another formal thing. Uh, Douglas MacArthur, uh, he kept an, a copy of it on his desk. Incredibly enough. So did uh, Colin Powell. I uh, understand that the uh, the, the Russian uh, uh, KGB, their spy service, uh, studied it extensively. It was a book widely used by these KGB officers. Um, there was a, a Finnish a field marshal, uh, Mannerheim. He used it in, in his battles. And it's also been used outside of the military as well. So that's what, that's what is make interesting because it, it's also a lot to do with politics and philosophy. So a lot of a lot of Japanese used it in the in their office politics and in, in corporate business strategy. It was actually required reading for Japanese companies and their executives 
and sometimes even in their management. I know, it's pretty amazing. Uh, there's a book by Robert Greene, a, a philosophy book called The 48 Laws of Powers, and he makes a big reference to it. Uh, the NFL, uh, Bill Belichick, he used a lot of it in his, uh, in his uh, running his team, although he doesn't always have the most ethical conduct in that, and I think that's unusual because if there's one thing that the, the art of war is, it is ethical conduct. So maybe he wasn't the best person to be using this book because I wouldn't associate with him with ethics. But the book is very ethic, okay? Um, it was used in the tactics and strategies for electronic sports and some of their video games. Uh, I know, it's pretty amazing. Uh, they even released a movie, The Order War, in 2014. So with uh, Wesley Snipes. So there, there's a lot to do with this, with this book in terms of it being a pledge. It was the only thing that Sung Tzu ever wrote. It was his masterwork. He put in everything that he did from all his battles, all the things that he had, uh, he had, um, he had learned and he wanted to pass on. Cause I'm sure he saw a lot of death. I'm sure he saw a lot of ways where things could have been done in a different manner. Probably from whatever he was taught, he decided to do something different so that there would be less bloodshed and there'd be a better chance. In many instances, some of the uh, tactics and strategies from Sung Tzu actually stopped battles from happening, where he still had a victory, but he didn't have to actually engage in military conduct, therefore people's lives being saved. So he's big into understanding that you know war in, in many instances could just be a, a gigantic uh, you know failure to, to to harm people and and of course to um, to be something that is not just. A physical extension of politics, but sometimes can be uh, in, in in a moral venture, and I don't think he uh, wanted that to to occur. So I think that's why he put together that book. So ironically, a military general putting together a military book, and he winds up having a book that's actually probably more about more about peace and strategy than it is about anything else. Not to say there's not about war stuff in there; it's in there. It's just that it, it's not the entire book. So when you read the book, you're very surprised and, and all those chapters and like, wow, this guy really understood a lot about human nature and he really understood a lot about, about warfare and he understood a lot about the human condition. And this is written literally thousands of years ago. So that is, that is pretty much uh, incredible. All right, folks, I want to remind you, we got uh, two more episodes left for the month, although I might do an interview one if I get something going at the end of the month, otherwise... We'll leave it at that until January. Uh, next one that's going to be coming up is the case against conformity. That's going to be interesting uh, about how oftentimes we can live in societies uh, that do this on a regular basis. Or maybe we even live in families. You know, if you ever, if you ever um, used to um, uh, a writer, uh, Thornton Wilder, he, he did a book, Our Town. If you ever read that that book, you'll find that the family was so rigid in ways that, you know, it made people rebellious, but it also kind of harmed their creativity and, and maybe even their their more open-minded view that they wanted to have and they couldn't. So you might have families that are against conformities. You might have religions that are against conformities or entire countries. Uh, they say that um, Japan can very much be like that. And it's hard to be creative with them being so conformist about many things. Uh, they, they say something similar about Iceland as well. So uh, they, they got some countries over there that it's just much harder to do so. We'll talk about, we'll talk about that. 
And then, of course, um, the last one for the month, unless unless we have an interview at the end of the month, will be another in the classic Spotlight series with the uh, famous and lovely uh, poet uh, Maya Angelou. Okay, folks, God bless. Until next time, this is Mark Anthony Rossi, Strength to be Human, the third installment in German Old Joust, Writing as Pledge, episode 172. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.